here's where we are in our talk on salvation. In the first four weeks of the series, this is what we've covered so far. We introduced salvation and why we even spend time on this topic, which a lot of people actually have asked questions about why spend time on salvation. So we spent time answering that question. In the second week, after we collected all of the note cards that had your questions, we went through them and made observations about the questions, just how interesting the questions were. And the questions we got just actually proved why we need to spend so many weeks working on a topic like salvation, because for something that seemed so simple, there were so many questions. In the third week, we covered these components of salvation, because salvation really is kind of a term that covers a lot of things. So we looked at justification, being right with God by being, having Christ's righteousness imputed to us. We looked at regeneration, which is the idea that our hearts are spiritually dead. We can't see God or even come to accept him unless we're made spiritually alive. We looked at how people see regeneration. We talked about conversion, where we come to faith and actually repent. We talked about adoption, where we're adopted into the family of God. And how all those things happen very close in time, but people argue in what order. And that's going to become significant tonight. Last week, Morgan walked us through sanctification, that lifelong process where we partner with God who is doing most of the work in us to change us from the inside, but we partner with God throughout our life to become more and more holy, more and more like Christ. You might see me make some comments about that a little bit tonight. So we've covered all those pieces. Next week, we're going to look at foreknowledge, which a lot of you have asked about. Like, what does it mean when God foreknows or predestines? How do different people understand it? We're going to look at that topic, especially as to how does God relate? Does God foreknow anything? Like, what's his relationship to time? Uh, and that's going to also stretch our thinking about God a little bit. And finally, we're going to end with just, you know, just answering all those questions you asked, just ticking them off and ending with, I think, a beautiful topic, which is what happens when we're actually glorified? What happens when the end of this process comes and the end of our life comes and we actually meet Christ? What's that like? A topic of salvation we never really talk about. We're always talking about new birth, being born again, like the beginning of salvation. And we never really spend a lot of time talking about what it's going to look like when it all comes to its culmination. Tonight, we're coming to these two questions, which were the most two asked questions on all of the cards we got. Many of you, while you had other questions, made sure to stop by and ask this one. Can you lose your salvation? And can you know that you are saved? It was almost like all the other questions are very interesting, but let's just get down to basics. Am I saved and is that going to stick or is there something I need to worry about? And the answers to those questions are very beautiful and in some ways complex. So here's what I'm going to do tonight. I'm going to use a little bit of visuals to help us and some verses. So when we first started this idea of talking about salvation, I think... In my mind, it was kind of like this. We were thinking like, this would be a fun topic to take on, salvation. Kind of like, oh, this little rock climbing thing here by the beach looks kind of fun, right? And the last few weeks, we've been kind of getting a little higher and higher. I think we thought, oh, this is, we can do this. We can scale this. Right now, we're kind of here in this point. <laughs> you got to know that I've told you in the past, we do a lot of reading to be able to present these topics. And I've been doing a lot of reading this week. Um, and I will, I will put up all the books we've read for this series probably next week. There's about seven of them at this point. And I realized that this is where we were as I was reading. I realized that there is so much information and so much that people agree and disagree on that there really wasn't much of a chance that I was going to be able to do them justice to answer your questions tonight. I'm going to try, but I'm going to tell you that my presentation to you tonight is going to be something that's fairly elementary. And if any of these people who wrote these books came in here, they would all be upset about how badly I misrepresented their positions. But I realize that there's a limit to how much we can take on, uh, especially when we talk about a question like, can you lose your salvation? It's been a question that's been debated for about 300 years. It's a question that when you read what people write, I usually can spot a good argument very quickly that's my skill as a logician, to look at somebody and say, that argument's better than this one. I can tell you that as I read these arguments and I read these presentations, they are so close and there are so many good points on all sides that I want to throw up my hand sometimes and think, why are we doing this? And I want to tell you that most churches do the exact same thing. 
they realize that if they're going to explain salvation to the depth that you would need to as you read these materials and you study for all the years you would do, getting all of the different degrees you can in very specific areas, you would feel like this if you were trying to present it to your congregation. You'd be hanging on wondering if you were going to make it. And I think this is the temptation we all feel. Shouldn't we make salvation just totally easy? Shouldn't we just forget the fact that we started to break it down and look very carefully at God's intricate plan of salvation? Wouldn't it just be easier to condense it down to a bumper sticker? So I decided to look into some of those for you and show you what we got. Here are some ways that people present salvation because it's so much easier to just go, ah, forget it. Let's just say it in a way that my congregation will get it, like this. You could just boil it down to a bumper sticker like, not perfect, just forgiven. Hey, that's easy to remember. Most of your people can actually probably remember that even up until the point they get lunch, you know, after the sermon. <laughs> so you think that's good enough. Not perfect, just forgiven. That's all salvation is boiled down to four words. Or how about this one? In case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. That's a good way to express salvation to somebody. Look, I don't understand anything, but I know he's coming to get me. <laughs> and it does reflect a little bit of pride, though, doesn't it? Because you're kind of like saying to the person behind you, you're assuming that they're not being raptured, right? I mean, why else would you be warning the car behind you? You're assuming that they're a heathen sinner and that you're holier than them. That's why you're raptured and they need a warning, right? Here's another one. Jesus Christ, God's answers for your life. Okay? That's, that's all you need to know. Don't ask any further. Here's a bumper sticker that just has a prayer. So while you're in traffic, you can pray this prayer. Jesus, I believe in you. <laughs> hey, this is kind of biblical. Don't go too far, right? Jesus, I believe in you. Come into my life. Forgive my sins. Heal me and bless me. Amen. You know, there's nothing wrong with that prayer. But think about it for a moment. Isn't it at a place where you feel like for a moment it's just easier to just boil everything we've talked about in the last four weeks down to that? Because then you don't have to struggle with anything. I've said already in this series that salvation is a very easy topic if you've never read the scriptures. Then you don't have to struggle with what does that mean as some of the verses we're going to look at tonight. How about this one, John 3.16, the Bible condensed. <laughs> I guess we could throw the rest of it out. <laughs> we need to get back to the basics of life. Stop, drop, repent. That, that sums up salvation in a way we can understand it. How about this one? This is my favorite one. Salvation, no analysis needed. And then, of course, they cite a verse. Of course, I would assume they meant no interpretation needed either. We just cite a verse and everybody would just understand and agree on what that meant. Salvation, no analysis needed. You might make fun of this bumper sticker, but I think some people in here probably feel, yeah, I'm in that camp. I'm thinking this series, maybe we tried to scale the cliff that we shouldn't have scaled. We should have just left it simple. Proud to be saved. You know, I can think of a lot of things we should feel about salvation. Pride just doesn't enter my mind. <laughs> like gratitude, humility, maybe even shock that God would do this. Pride doesn't seem to be one of the ones that seems like the right response to an offer of salvation from a holy God. Here's one, eternity, smoking or non-smoking? <laughs> this one reduces salvation to one simple thing. Do you want to burn or not? That's all salvation's about. Hey, salvation may at least include that. Uh, but I don't think, again, if you read the scriptures, that that's the sole focus of salvation. In fact, it's so much more rich than that. Uh, I like this one. comes probably from a seminary student. It's just a statement of devout religious affiliation that you just put on your, you know. And you'd have to be a little bit. You'd at least have a master's degree to understand this one, I think, you know. Right. Yeah, th this one gets the wit award. And, of course, the one that makes me shrink back the most. Oh. <laughs> So let's move into some more reflective stuff about this series on this question. It was the most asked question. Can you lose 
your salvation. And not surprisingly, you're going to break into two camps in Christianity. And guess what the two possible answers are? Yes and no. <laughs> All right, you guys are tracking with me tonight. Can you lose your salvation? There are Christians who say yes, and there are Christians who say no. We're going to look at why they say no and yes on this question. Because I really want to say, I use the word look very intentionally. We're going to look at what they say, because i got to tell you, like that guy you know, kind of hanging off the edge of that cliff, I don't think I'm going to be able to resolve this for you in any way. Uh, when you read all the materials that are so well written and so well thought through and all the verses they cite, at the end you think, you know what, I'm not going to stand here and just tell you the answer. I don't even think they could agree on an answer even if we locked them into a room and told them they couldn't leave until they agreed on one. They wouldn't be able to come to one. And not because anyone's holding out. I think there's arguments on all sides. Here's the second question. Can you know that you were saved? Again, there are Christians that say no, and there are Christians that say yes. But here's what I want you to notice. The reason I put them in this little table for you is, look, the people who think that you cannot lose your salvation also seem to say that you actually don't know for sure that you're saved. So there's a little bit of good news there. You're thinking, yeah, I can't lose it. But there's also a little bit of bad news, which is I'm not sure I'm in that club that isn't losing it. Yes? Are you sure about that? Only because I thought yeah. they would still say, as a Christian, you're going to experience the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, and you're going to have, going to have a confirmation there that you can't Right. The reason that I say no is because, and we're going to say in just a moment, let's label them first, right? So let's give them a label. One is the Calvinist view. That's the one that says you cannot lose your salvation. But they're also the ones that if you really listened to them and got them to be as straight with you as possible, they would also say, it's also not possible for you to have complete assurance that you're saved. Now, they will say you can, like in answer to your question, you can have a sense of the Holy Spirit. You can know that's true, but here's the reason that I say the answer ultimately is no, and most of their critics would say this about them. One of the requirements in the Calvinist view is that you persevere to the end of your life as a Christian. And because you presently don't know, that's the best sign that you are one of the elect, is that you persevere all the way to the end of your life. So if you were to sit here now in your mid-20s and say, am I saved? You might have that feeling, you might feel like it, but the thing that tweaks your mind sometimes is Calvinists will say there are people who have the false assurance of salvation. There are people who are walking around thinking that they are saved, but they are not. And the proof will be they will not make it to the end of their life. And so that's why I say there's some good news in you can't lose your salvation. And there's some kind of strange news in the, well, I don't really know if I'm totally saved. Let's switch over to the Arminian view. They say, Yes, you can lose your salvation. I know some of you think, I don't like that. I would rather not have the ability to lose it. But they'll also say that if you ask, can you know you're saved, they will say, yes, you can. Because if you're a believer right now, then that is your evidence of salvation. I put an asterisk next to yes, because Arminius also believe that you can lose that salvation so it's yes, as long as you continue uh, as well and don't stop believing. That's about as simple as I can make it, Jolene. Um, what if you believe that you can't lose your salvation, but you can also know that you're saved? Like, is there like a diagonal line? Is there something in the middle? Like, it goes across? It's a very good question. And here's where I'm going to tell you there are what I would call mediating views. There are people who are in the middle. I'm not going to present their view tonight. I may before we're done. And here's what I'm going to tell you about the mediating views. The people on either side of this view hold their views for reasons that I think are, you know, they, they believe their views so strongly that if you take a mediating view, everybody shoots at you, right? So there are people who've tried to formulate views that say, well, I kind of agree about this one thing, but I don't agree about this one thing. And there are more than just these two things. They kind of take out a middle position. And then all sides say that that side is completely inconsistent. In other words, you've got to be brave to take out a mediating position on this, but people do. And I actually will tell you just as a hint that as I read some of those middle ground views, I find a lot of truth in them that I think solves a lot of the 
dilemma between them, okay? But tonight I'm gonna to stick with these two, I wouldn't call them complete extremes, but I wanna say that these are solidly the two that have been debated the longest, let's put it that way, okay? So we could stop here. I could say the answer is no and yes, and no and yes, and we could just stop. But what I'd like to do is I'd like to give you just a taste of why. And it really is just a taste. Let's look at their view just about can you lose your salvation. I can't resolve it for you, but I at least want you to understand why somebody would think that you can't lose your salvation and why somebody would think that you might be able to. And again, if people walked in this room who held either one of these positions, they would both throw stones at me for rewriting their positions this way. I'm actually translating them into as much English as I can because they use so many detailed terms of art to describe their positions, I'd be here all night trying to explain them to you. So I'm going to just reinterpret them for you, which is a little bit of a shortcut. Uh, they would not like, but here's what I think they're trying to say. If you believe that you cannot lose your salvation, here's the reason. You follow this kind of line of thinking that I have over here under the Calvinist view. You believe that God elects, he chooses whom he's going to save. He's making a choice. That because God is sovereign, he cannot be defeated once he makes that choice. You believe that God acts on your heart first. Before you even had an opportunity to respond to God, your heart was dead. It had no ability to respond to God. God worked on you and made your heart spiritually alive even to be able to respond. And God does that all by himself. And then God applies his grace to your life. And that grace you cannot resist. His grace applied to those whom he's elected, not to all people, but to those whom he's chosen, causes you to respond in faith. That means that only those he's chosen, only the elect are justified, only those people are made right with God, and then God will glorify those whom he's justified. Chris. So from that perspective, would these group of people think that the purpose of going out and being commissioned by God to go you know, spread the word is only to find the people that God has already assigned to be saved? Yes, the people who will tell you truthfully they will say that God has already chosen only a select few. So why would they want to go out like Because they don't know who they are. That is God who has chosen, and he doesn't reveal to us who he's chosen. So a lot of people have asked that question. It's a very good question. Like, so if you took this view, why is evangelism even important? Their response is, evangelism is the method by which you hear. And I don't know if you're elect or not. My role, and it says in scripture, it's a command to preach the word. It's not an option. It's not like, oh, it'd be good to find some people who are elect. It's like one of the roles of the disciple is to preach the gospel. Our work is to be done tirelessly and to do it completely. But in the end, God has already chosen those whom he's going to choose. And he's going to use your evangelism to give them an opportunity to respond. That's their position. Jolene. If, if you're predestined, if God already chose you, then why do I need someone to come and show it to me if I'm already chosen? Why do I need someone to come and tell me about it if I, my destiny is already planned? That is a good comeback. Make sense to me. But let me just throw out a warning. I'm not looking tonight for people to say I buy or don't buy a position because the positions that I'm presenting on the screen in six points literally fill up books, right? And so I can't fairly resent the position other than to say, Look at what their thinking is, right? That's all I'm trying to do is step you back to say, it's not like they decided one day, can we lose our salvation or not, just based on some arbitrary reason. Their theological framework leads them to this result. And that's, I think, where I want to camp out. Monique? Um, I just kind of wanted to sort of confirm that the Calvinist viewpoint, they do have a traditional, I don't know, this is a loaded question, but a traditional view of like hell, I guess, that like people that aren't saved to go to like an eternal damnation? I think I'm going to leave that out of it because across both views, whether you're Calvinist or Arminian, they all believe that there's a hell. The difference is that God's choosing to send people there, right? So that's kind of why I'm asking. Okay, so that's a better question to focus in on. If you heard someone who is like without pulling any punches, presenting the Calvinist view, uh, they would readily admit that if God chooses whom to save, then he is by 
by, by implication. Yeah, he's de facto choosing who not to save. Some of them will spend a lot of time saying this is not, you know, something God's excited about. I was like, but it doesn't matter. Because when you boil it down, it's saying God is choosing who to save. Since there's only two choices, salvation or not. I'm not trying to, like, judge God on that fact. He's God. He can yeah. do whatever he wants. I just kind of want to understand the whole sort of view of how they're seeing it. But I want to be clear that Calvinists and Arminius are capable of having different views about hell, just like we talked about in our hell series, that does not mean that every one of them adheres to one view or another. Of course, any everlasting, fiery hell is still the majority view. So I would say that both camps would still accept that as the majority view. But you can't say that all Calvinists believe in only that. Abby? So then would like, the Calvinists do not believe that like, intercessory prayer for a friend for their salvation would be needed? Hmm. Hmm. I'm going to reserve that question, and here's why. Because when we say that God elects and chooses, right away there's an issue that we have to address, which we're actually addressing next week. And the question is, is God doing that ahead of time, if there is time in God's domain? Is God in an eternal present tense so that he's taking into consideration all of those things like intercessory prayer? So next week when I say we're going to talk about God's foreknowledge, we're actually going to zoom in just on that question because most people, when they look at the Calvinist view, the first one is the one that troubles them the most. Although the others should be kind of difficult for some of us, the fact that God regenerates us. That literally means that we can't respond in faith until he acts first. That's consistent with him choosing, right? So that one is one we don't think of, so we'll just think about that. But the one that troubles people the most is this idea of him electing or choosing before the creation. And does that mean that anything I do has any impact if that's already happened? And that would depend on whether God is acting in a moment or whether he's part of the continuum of time while those things are going on. Okay, so I'm going to come back to that question. Joseph? So looking at the Calvinist view and knowing what people often think about God loving people and how could a loving God send someone to hell, is that where at least some of the universalist viewpoint where everyone saved would come from and that God would elect everybody? Well, it's, but the Armenian view is going to be no less troubling to a universalist because there, there's so many ways you could not have faith Right? So the universalist really comes out of a desire to just think, you know what, I just want everybody to be saved. Now, you can want that, but the problem is Scripture provides very few things you could stand on to take that position. Right? So what happens with universalism is you've just come to a conclusion that that's what you want, and then you just refuse to believe all the verses that say exactly the opposite. Right? But both Arminian views and a Calvinist view uh, both of them are going to cause trouble for a universalist. It's just that a Calvinist view is especially heinous to a universalist because it puts God, you know, it puts God in a place where he's choosing. We have to come back to what that means. Okay? So look at it. This is a very key you know, way to understand why they believe that you can't lose your salvation. Now that you understand their view, think about it. If God wants you to be saved, there's no way you're not going to be saved. And you can't lose it because you'd be thwarting God's sovereignty. That's the mindset that leads someone to say, you can't lose your salvation. I know most of you like the view that we're about to get to, which has more freedom and more choosing. And the thing that goes along with that is, yes, it means that then you can lose your salvation because you're free to walk away. Chris. I know you said that there's much more information, but are you gonna go into more detail on some of the statements, like the one that says, our grace is irresistible to the elect? Yeah, let me, let me just go through them one by one to make sure you understand. So I think we understand the electing and the choosing. God's sovereignty can't be defeated. I think most of us would assent to that, except that in this case, it means that the outcome is determined. God regenerates the elect. That's a very key one because it means, as I said, he acts first to even allow your heart to become spiritually alive, to even deal with the gospel, even if you were to hear it. You are not able to accept unless he has regenerated your heart. God's grace is irresistible to the elect means that it overwhelms you. It actually is, some people would call it coercive. That when God's grace is applied to you, you cannot say, I don't want it. Because God's grace draws you to the point that it actually brings you in. Calvinists don't like when, they, when you say against your will, but you know, the critics say that's exactly what you're saying because you're saying it's irresistible. It cannot be resisted. 
you've taken away the free will of human beings when your grace is applied, but it's only applied to the elect. So that doesn't mean that they, they wouldn't take the position that that person is like sinning less or having less difficulty. No, just their ability to respond to the gospel. Only the elect are justified, that we understand. And of course, everyone agrees that those who are justified are glorified. That's directly biblical. Yes. So what happens to the person who wasn't chosen but wants to have salvation? You, under this view, they wouldn't want to have it. Mm -hmm. So God almost shielded them, hardened their hearts from it. And that would be the regeneration issue. Look, this part here about regeneration is kind of like the key. Because they would say that because your heart is not alive, you wouldn't even want this. You wouldn't you just wouldn't be there. The only trouble with that is some Calvinists believe that there are people who have false uh, belief, which makes it strange. It almost rubs against the regeneration. Like, why would anybody want it, but then not actually have it? That's kind of a weird one, and not all Calvinists believe that, by the way. Well, it makes it scary if people because what if somebody truly believes they are saved, but... When I read the part about some people have false assurance and false belief, like, I stopped for a moment while I was reading and thought, like, what if that's me? <laughs> you know, like, this is kind of a weird spot, you know, because the good news is you can never lose your salvation. But as I said, the bad news is you don't really know if you're one of them. You really almost never know to the end of your life. And maybe when you show up that, and they will resist that. They'll say, no, there's ways and there's all this stuff. But if you read straight the verses that they're arguing and the position they're taking, it's not assuring at all. Morgan? On the Arminian side on that, God's grace allows free will to choose. I still have an understanding that God is aiding in very, very large proportions. I mean, there's a sense that, I mean, what do you do if the person says, unless the Father draws someone, you can't, I mean, I would say Arminians still have to deal with that verse, and at least the way I deal with it is saying, and First John saying, God has loved us first, and we respond. And, you know, so either way, you can't, we just want to make sure the Armenian position isn't saying that we choose God first because no position, at least they shouldn't because God has to reveal. Let me explain the contrast. And I'm going to go through the Armenian view real fast and take more questions. In contrast, I wrote this very carefully. God's grace allows free will to choose. You might be focusing on the allowing free will, like it's God's grace that would allow us free will. Actually, it's the emphasis is grace. In the Armenian view, God's grace is a grace that also draws you. It's not irresistible, but it's very persuasive. It's a grace where you see God pursuing us so much that it's hard to resist God's grace, but his grace still allows us to resist. In other words, as you'll see later, an Armenian would say, it can still be grace even if you can resist it. God can still pursue you and it doesn't defeat it being called grace just because you can resist it. But they will say it's not coercive, but it is very persuasive. It is the picture of God most of us have of somebody who's wooing and chasing and acting first to pursue mankind, humankind. So that's the contrast there. Let me walk through the other ones. Arminians believe that salvation is offered to all. They stick to those verses when it says, when, I lift, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men, right? Or salvation being for the world. They believe that election still includes salvation for all being offered, okay? They believe that faith is a condition of salvation. So you might be thinking, yeah, yeah, because most of us have grown up in churches that take this view. God's grace allows that free will. I just explained that, that it's very persuasive, but it's not coercive. Here's the other side, though. Saving faith, because it's a condition, can be lost. Specifically, most traditional Arminians, if you follow Jacob Arminius, who actually is, Arminianism is named after, he would say there's one way that you lose salvation, not a multitude of ways. It's apostasy, where you cease having faith and walk away. But at the same time, more... Like recent Arminians say, no, if you just fall into deliberate sin and just don't come back, you're going to lose your salvation. Every one of us goes, no, I hope not. <laughs> we have a role to play in justification. What's that role? The role is that we have to respond in faith. There's a condition there that unless we respond in faith, 
no justification. And of course, they agree that God will glorify all those who are justified. So you can see them kind of laying down next to each other. Okay, now I'll take questions. Chris. So the statement, salvation is offered to all, is that a post-New Testament statement, or do they think that also applied back in the Old Testament? Yeah, that would be like, they're talking about Jesus' salvation going forward, right? And they're... And, Although they have views on what happens to people who come before Christ, we're not even going to go there because they can't even agree on just the simple, like, what do we do with John 3.16, right? Like, so that, that's hard enough. I mean, if the Bible were condensed to John 3.16 like that one bumper sticker wanted, we'd still be arguing, you know? <laughs> and that just gives me assurance that this will never end. Yes? Maybe it's, it's already implied, but you said you can lose it, but you can get it back again, right? So it's sort of like a, do they believe that? Or? Most Arminians believe that if you lose... Salvation through apostasy, you cannot regain salvation again. And I'm going to cite the verses to why. Okay. Can you know that you're saved? I've reduced these points down to one. The Calvinists just say the reason you can't know you're saved is because you must persevere to the end. That's what I was explaining to Morgan. And you don't really know if you're going to persevere to the end yet. The Armenian view would say, yes, your faith is the assurance of your salvation. The fact that you're a believer is assurance of salvation. Uh, but in the present, and they would add only if you don't commit apostasy, and Wesley and Arminius, which are a distinct group, would say, and only if you don't fall into a state of sin that is so bad that you can't come back from it. And then all of us get nervous again and go, like, well, how far is that? Like, where's that line? <laughs> right? And we start drawing lines again. Now, I'm going to read some verses to you. I want to tell you that there are probably 50 verses on either side of this thing that you could cite. Conservatively, there's at least 25 on each side. For your enjoyment, I've limited to six on each side, okay? So you could even count them, just to know where we are in the mix, right? So if you feel like this is insufferable and how long is this going to go on, just count. There's six verses on either side. That's all the scripture you need for the entire week, okay? Just you're going to get it tonight, all right? I want to also tell you one thing that's very personal to me about this. About 10 or 11 years ago, when I first got into young adult ministry, the reason I did was because I was alarmed at the number of people who were leaving the church in their young adult years. And back then, and even till now, the statistic was that if you were 20 years old and you were a Christian, that by the time you were 30, 75% of those people were gone. I wanted to figure out why and to figure out if there was a way to understand our faith at a different level. And that's why we do Exodus. And that's why we podcast it to people who don't have something like this, so that maybe there's a hope that they will at least hear something that would persuade them to think more about the reasons that they may be struggling with their faith. But this is very personal to me because the issue of salvation is very intricate to that statistic. If people are leaving the faith, and if there's a group of people in our churches who believe that means they were never saved to begin with, and there's another group of people who say, well, that just means that they committed the sin of apostasy or they fell away to a certain point that they can't be redeemed anymore, I don't know that that made me feel better under any one of those scenarios. But we know this is not just theory right now. All of you have friends who have fallen away. All of you are friends who are in danger of falling away. And I think that just understanding this is not just like, oh, I get to have a little bit more understanding of salvation. I think it will help shape and form some very real circumstances going on in your lives. Let's look at some of the verses. Here's some verses that support Eternal security. This is the Calvinist view. They would cite this. John 5.24. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And will not be judged, but is crossed over from death into life. They see that as just, there is a crossover and it's happened. They would cite John 6, verses 37 to 40. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. This is their part that they would cite very clearly. That I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks at the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. If you're paying close attention, that second one seems to go the other way a little bit, like my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son, right? So you're going to see this verse come back on the other side. 
Romans 11.29 says, For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. So that would be a verse cited often. It says, look, it's not something you can take back. This should be familiar to us now. Romans 8, verses 29 to 30 and 33. This is the one that we're going to be talking about next week as well. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Do you see that in this verse, Eric, there is so much emphasis on God. We're not even in view here. God does this, God does that, God does that. And he couldn't be any more clear when he ends and says, God justifies. I think in the Arminian view, it would say, well, actually, we have a role to play in that because we've got to have faith. It's a condition of that justification. This verse, if you just zoomed in here and the whole Bible was on this bumper sticker, you'd say, God does everything. We do nothing. Okay, but we also have to consider other verses. Ephesians 1, verse 13 and 14 and you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are in God's possession to the praise of his glory. The point here that they would make is if the Holy Spirit is a deposit and a guarantee, how weak is the Holy Spirit if he can't hold you in place? He's guaranteeing your future inheritance. He's guaranteeing the redemption of those in God's possession. And that would make the Holy Spirit, who is God, a very weak seal, a very weak deposit. And that seems that that would cut against our view of the Holy Spirit. Last one on this side for those counting. For by one sacrifice, this is Hebrews 10, 14 and 18. And it's really interesting that it's in Hebrews, because we're going to talk about Hebrews in just a moment on the other side. So just know that Hebrews kind of, you know, can be read different ways too. For by one sacrifice he made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And where these sins have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. So this verse, they would say, implies, look, he's done it once, he's done it forever. You can't lose that because he made you perfect forever by his sacrifice. That's it. Now, as I said, there's many other verses we could cite on this side. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to switch to the other side. Here are some verses that support loss of salvation through apostasy. The first two, you've already seen. We just read them. And the reason I put these up on the other side is because Arminian theologians will say, look, you guys didn't take Greek 101 in your seminary, apparently. Because if you read these verses, there's a condition implied in the language. When we read this in English, it says, whoever hears my word and believes him. What do you think of? Like believes, past tense. We almost change it to say, like believed in our mind. Like if you believed in him, you're done. And an Armenian view is, you have to look at the Greek very carefully. It's in the present tense. It's a present participle, actually. And I'm just citing what they're saying, because I'm not a Greek scholar. But they would say, every time you see a word in the present, you need to change it to the present participle. What that means is, at ing. So you could read it this way. Whoever hears my word and is believing in him will have eternal life. So you have to continue in the action. Their view is that anybody who understands the Greek language knows that these things are continuous actions even though we read them in the present. That's their view of them. That's the best Arminian argument against these verses that they would say. We agree that these verses are primary for us to be talking about. It's just that you read them, you Calvinists, read them as this was a past action. And anyone who knows Greek, according to them, I'm just parroting their statement, anybody who understands Greek knows that you must use the present participle, which means it's an action that begins in the present and is continuing. So in our English, instead of translating as believes, it would be is believing, right? So those are the kind of things. So like you might see anyone who hears the word, who continues to hear the word, right? Who continues to believe. They would even read John 3.16 that way. They wouldn't say, like, whoever believes in him. They would read it as whoever be is believing in him. Okay? Again, if we reduced it, like I said, to John 3.16, we'd be arguing over, is it a continuing condition? Does that mean you can lose it? 
I said it's technical, but I just want you to see where they're coming from. Here's one more. This is Matthew 24. This is where they say, look, you gotta, you got to continue to believe. Matthew 24, 12 to 13 says, Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. So this is Jesus talking about standing firm. He's describing, by the way, the context of this is there's coming trouble. There's coming tribulation. There's going to be trials that you believers are going to face. The one who stands firm until the end is the one who will be saved. That would be nice if it was somebody obscure like Second Peter. We could just toss that and go, I don't know what that is. Let's ignore that. But this comes right out of Matthew and is quoting Jesus. So they would say, this seems like a condition that you've got to buy. Yes. The Calvinist view that is um, that the one who stands firm, you have to stand firm to make it to the end, and only the elect would be able to reach the end anyway. They would, they would say that that is an assurance of salvation perspective, but not necessarily on whether you could lose it or not. They would say it's not conditional, but it might relate to whether you are in or not. And an Arminian would say, no, Jesus is pretty clear. What is salvation in this case? Who's going to be saved? The person who stands firm in your belief that doesn't fall away, doesn't fall away from the faith. Just three more. Somebody on their cards, the reason I put these two verses, somebody on your cards specifically asked this question. What about the warning passages in Hebrews? If you've never heard the term, there are five passages in Hebrews that when you read them, scare the bejeebers out of you. <laughs> I've picked two of them. I've picked the two that scare the bejeebers out of me the most. <laughs> These are the warning passages in Hebrews. They're hotly contested, but let me at least read them to you so you know why Arminians love the warning passages, because they believe if you listen to this, it will scare you into thinking you could lose your salvation. Hebrews 6, 4 to 8. I think, I'm sorry, it should be 4 to 7, I think. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. Why? To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Chris just asked, so can you go back and forth where you fall out and come back in? This is why many of the classic Arminian views are, no, if you commit apostasy after knowing God and tasting these things and sharing in the family of God and then decide to walk out, you cannot walk back in because you are using Christ's sacrifice almost for your own purposes and according to this verse, you're crucifying God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. That's the reading of it, of why I said to Chris, no, they would not believe that. Randy. Isn't that really limiting the power of God, though? I mean, can God bring back anybody he wants? I mean... Well, the question isn't what can God do. The question is what will God do? And so they're fighting over not is it possible for God to do something? Like even a Calvinist would admit, like, yeah, it's possible for God to just do whatever he wants. But the question is, since he's revealed in scripture what he will do in some cases, we don't have a full picture of everything God will do, then we have to understand, well, if he's revealed this, what will he do? What is he saying he's going to do? And so an Armenian view would say, in this way, there's a warning here. If you commit apostasy after being a believer, you can't come back. That's the way they read it. Yes. So, how would they view the verse of like Jesus going back for the one sheep that was like left behind? Is that someone that was never saved? Because it talks about like his sheep and would I not go back for the one even if I had the 99 and da da da. So, most Arminian, well, no, the original view of Arminianism is this is a rare case where you commit apostasy, right? You can still sin, you can even falter in your faith, you can fall down and not even know which way is up with God, and his love will still reach out to you and go after you. It's when you just affirmatively just say, I no longer believe that you've committed apostasy. But, like I said, there is a sect of Arminians, the Wesleyans, who actually believe, no, 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 if you just sin and go crazy and just, you're also going to lose it. They cite something else, okay? Yeah, I mean, this is the reason why I said, like, I'm going to give you, like, broad strokes, and if, they were, if, four, if the four that I've read were standing in the back, they'd all be screaming right now. You know, <laughs> you know they'd, all, 
because I'm, I'm really having to hack their thinking to, to bite-sized pieces that we could all digest. It's like the only thing I could do. Let me read the next warning passage. This is, I think, the one that's even stronger. Hebrews 10, 26 to 29, and I'm going to add verse 36. It says this, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of the raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? Who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them? And who has insulted the Spirit of grace? You need to persevere so that you, when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Most people focus on the, if we deliberately keep on sinning, no sacrifice is left. It's a sobering passage that few churches will preach on. <laughs> uh, just because it's going to cause enough people, like, you know, they'll just be like a riot or a lot of questions afterwards to really address this. But think about that from an Arminian view is there is proof that if you continue to sin deliberately after you have knowledge of the truth, you are, I mean, look at the idea. You're stepping on the blood of Christ that saved you because you're defaming it with your conduct and the fact that you were deliberately saying, I'll take the salvation and I'll continue to do whatever I want. That would say that you either didn't understand it, you never accepted it. Whatever the view you're going to take is, that's the passage. In fairness, there are whole books written on the five warning passages of Hebrews with all different views about them that I cannot go into because you don't want me to. <laughs> you just want me to tell you it's all going to be okay. It's all okay. <laughs> it's all going to be all right. Now, what would a Calvinist say in response to these things? Because these look pretty like, hey, it looks like you can lose your salvation. Arminians seem to have found great passages. And most Calvinists who are very intellectually you know, honest will say, these are good especially this last one from Hebrews 10. Probably if you're going to use pick one, you'd pick this one, a Calvinist would say. That's the best one the Arminians have. They would say, this is not about salvation. This is about your rewards. This is about sanctification. This is about your life with Christ. Some of you last week launched into a whole theology of what you think rewards are in heaven, and you thought it didn't have much to do with sanctification. But it does. Because Calvinists who are really interested in what sanctification does and why we're motivated to do it, talk about rewards a lot. And we think, well, that just seems very mercenary to talk about rewards. But the reason they talk about rewards so much is because when they see passages like this, they're actually bringing up a whole subject of rewards. So let me say it as plainly as I can. Arminius think you can lose your salvation because of these verses. Calvinists say, we don't think he's talking about salvation. We're thinking that you might lose rewards, you might lose certain things, but you're still saved. I got to tell you, when I look at that, it looks like the Armenians have a good point on this one. And even after I read a hundred pages of response to these verses, some of them are good responses. I don't have time to tell you all of them, but I will tell you that there are some good responses on the Calvinist side, but in the end, I still was kind of convinced that this is something we should be a little bit careful about, Monique. Um, I'm just curious when they read into this, um, Calvinists, and think that it's about rewards, is that sort of just through a lens that they're looking at because of what they believe, or is there some sort of evidence in the, in the language or something that would lead them to believe it's rewards and not salvation? When we come to scripture, it is very hard to throw out all of your preconceived notions and start with a blank slate. Everybody, every one of us, starts with some idea. And like I said, the thing that makes this discussion so hard is both Calvinists and Arminians. It's not like they arbitrarily picked a view of God. This view of God has so many verses to cite on all sides. And then they say, look, we believe God to be this way. And we see all these verses that support it. So when we come to verses on salvation, we need to read those verses together with this. Chris, you want to jump in? Um, maybe I'm jumping ahead, but when you talk about both sides and then you talk about a mediating position if you read past you know six four and eight and you go on to like nine and ten it says in ten god is not unjust he will not forget your work and the love you have shown him 
as you have helped this people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who, through faith and patience, inherit what has been promised. It almost seems like inherently in there, there is acknowledgement that no one's perfect, right? So it seems like these two ends describe a picture of you can only do this or that, and, and you have to be perfect in either case, but nobody is. So it seems more like it's it's like on one end, they're, like God is allowing people to want to be um, worried about it so that you don't become lazy. On the other end, it seems like in that same one that is here supposed to supposedly damning the ability that you have a choice, it says God doesn't, he's not unjust and he will not forget your work. So that almost seems like it's implying that, yeah, he knows you're going to screw up. He also acknowledges that you're trying. So a lot of what comes out here is the question of what is the author of Hebrews trying to say throughout the whole book, which of course we're not going to do. And some people would say these are special cases within that context. So you can't just pluck these verses out and freak out over them because you have to understand the whole letter. The thing I'll tell you about that is that if you read the whole letter or you read long parts of it, the context goes both ways. There are parts when he, we just read, a part where he's going to you to be perfect forever. He's made you perfect forever through one sacrifice. And then just a little bit later, we're talking about you know, sinning deliberately, which may be a special case. All right, all I'm doing is showing you that these guys are not nuts. And maybe, maybe it matters to you in some way to understand. Because a lot of you, I think if I just asked you, if I just asked you right now to raise your hand, go, how many people think that we had something to do with our salvation? I think most of us like the idea of being involved in some way, right? A lot of us take that view. But I just want to point out that that's the view that also has the ability to lose salvation because so much of it is in our hands. Just something to think about. Is apostasy, does it just mean like being lazy or does it mean that you say that you were saved and believe that Jesus died on your cross for your sins and then all of a sudden you reject that and say that Jesus is did not is not the savior of the world. So when they talk about sinning or when they talk about um, falling out of faith, are they just saying you become lazy or does that mean that or is the sin that you have rejected Christ as the savior? Yeah, most Arminians would say it's the second one. It's a, it's a clear rejection of Christ. Like I said, there are people who just believe that over time, if you continue to sin, you'll get to that place. But I would say more believe that, no, this is a, a rejection of the faith that saved you and the one who saved you. It's pretty drastic. That's why they say some classic Arminians would say, don't freak out over this. This is not something that happens every day. They will even add that there are people who just... They don't know where they are at a certain point. They believed at one point and they're going through struggles or going through trouble that their faith has fallen down. Maybe I should get to that verse and I'll show you. This is the only, the last verse I'm going to talk about. This verse comes from 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13. And Arminius cite this quite often. They say, if we died with him, we'll also live with him. Okay? If we endure, we will also reign with him. Both camps can claim some space there. <laughs> right? The next one says, if we disown him, he will disown us. And the verse after, this say, the, after that one says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot disown himself. And this is where the split happens. And just in this verse couplet, people split. Calvinists would say, look, even when we're faithless, he will remain faithful. He will not disown himself because we are in Christ. God's work has already been done. And our ministers say, just back up a couplet right there. It says, if we disown him, he will disown us. That's why I say this is not one we're going to resolve. We're hanging off the edge of that cliff, and it's like, I just want to show you why people believe what they do. Monique. Can you kind of think that, like, because God is so sovereign, and there are places in the Bible where he specifically hardens someone's heart, or he may choose someone for a very specific reason. It's like, yeah, I'm choosing you. You are going to follow me. You're going to do this, whatever, for his purposes. But that also, in other cases, there's sort of more free will, which we see that with a lot of different aspects of, of faith. Well, I'm going to state it this way and say come next week to hear about foreknowledge. But so far in the last few weeks, we've looked a lot at the Calvinist perspective. I want to show you what an Arminius would say as a closing thought for you. Here's how he would make the divide. I kind of made my divide. This is actually an Arminius by the name of Stephen Ashby. Very, very well thought out guy. He says, let me tell you how Calvinists would be right. He would say, 
If God's sovereignty requires a cause and effect relationship, meaning if God's sovereignty means that if he wants something to happen, he's going to make you do it. If grace can only be grace if humans are unable to resist it. And if election can only be election if it's unconditional and particular. What does he mean by that? Meaning that, that there are no conditions, like faith is not a part of his choice. He's decided who to save and your faith has nothing to do with it. And particular means he's chosen some people and not others. If those things are true of God, then the Calvinists are right. That's his perspective. So if you want to ask me when I would give up the argument on the Arminian side, show me in scripture that God's sovereignty requires cause and effect. It's deterministic. It results in you, you don't have any choice. And grace, you will, it will overwhelm you. And election means that I'm not going to even wait for you. You have no part in it, and I'm only picking the people I want. If that's right, Calvinists are right. Now, of course, he's going to be more charitable to his side. Here's how he says that the Arminius view comes out. But on the other hand, if God has sovereign control while allowing for human contingency, in other words, God is still sovereign even as humans make all their choices. He's still sovereign. He's still working out what he wants, even if we have free will to make choices. And if grace can still be grace, even if humans can actually reject it, it's still grace. It doesn't rob God of the power of grace or to bestow grace upon us just because it's not irresistible. And if election can still be election, even if it's conditioned on faith, then we're right. And I'm going to say, you got to look next week to figure out, we're going to look at foreknowledge, which actually looks at all of those things to help us figure out this is right. The reason we're going to do next week is because I've had a number of conversations with you already afterwards who say, isn't the solution to all this that if God is just somehow outside of time and he knows what everybody's going to choose and we're not troubled by him choosing? Let's find out next week because some people say yes and some people say no. One more picture for you. I know at this point after so many minutes of doing this, we're back to thinking, wouldn't it just be great if salvation was just as an on-off switch? I mean, you're just either saved or you're not. Who cares about all the details? Again, I've been thinking about this because every time I start to put together these slides, I think I'm going to have to face all of your faces while I tell you this. And all of you are going to be looking at me going, it would just be simpler if it was just a switch. And I thought about this analogy all week. I think it would be simpler. By the way, I think it should be like this. I don't know that every one of us has to understand the difference between these views to be saved. I, I don't believe that. But you know the funny thing is sometimes you go to turn on a light and it just doesn't work. And once in a while we got to figure out like what's wrong. I looked at the circuit just for this little light switch that I was showing you. And it is not easy to understand how it is that when you flick a light, a light comes on. Maybe for most of us that's all we want to know about salvation. Like I just want to be saved and I just want to get it over with. And I don't really care about any of the details. Okay. But every once in a while in our life, we go through a weird crisis because we come across a verse in scripture and we think, what does that mean? Why is that there? Have you read Hebrews? It's been a while since most of us have probably read Hebrews. Have you gone through some of those passages to get to a point where you go, what does that mean? Like, why is that in there? Am I there? And I got to tell you, during this series, I had a number of moments like that when I'm reading verses and I thought, where do I stand? I don't feel so secure suddenly reading this verse or, wow, that's not the way I understand it. And that's why we're doing this, again, because once in a while, just once in a while, it's useful for us to know our faith at a little bit deeper level than just switching it on or off. Because that's what gets us through the rougher points. That's why we're doing this. So there's some reasons, and you asked the question, uh, so there's some at least potential answers that might help you. Next week, I'm going to actually help to resolve it even more. Once we understand foreknowledge, maybe we can come to a better understanding and pick a mediating position. Let's pray and close up. Lord, I'm mindful whenever we come to a night like tonight that we are dissecting something that is so beautiful and so intricate that we should pause for a moment and just thank you for the fact that you have been the author and the perfecter of our salvation and that you took on the cross and that you took on the sins of the world uh, so that the people sitting in this room have a very, very glorious future. And I want to take a moment, Jesus, to thank you for our salvation.
Lord, whether we're able to grasp these aspects or just sit in awe and wonder at the fact that your scriptures are filled with descriptions of your revealed will about salvation for us. Lord, I thank you first and foremost that we have that. And Lord, I ask you that we be mindful of those people who don't or those people in our lives right now who are struggling, who are wondering uh, who we are going to be your light and your salt in their life. That you embolden us, that you give us the spirit to even say the things that we need to say at times when we don't know what to say. That you would anoint us in that way. Uh, Lord, we don't know the resolution of all these things, but we do know that you have commanded us to love others and to preach your gospel and to bring salvation to the world. Use us in that way. Pray this in your name. Amen.